You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Rasinczynski and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog of uh, all the episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where we answered a lot of great questions from our community that had come in during Rob's vacation. So you don't want to miss that episode. And also, I would encourage you to listen to the Wednesday episode, where this week we spoke to Michael Howell about how liquidity drives financial markets based on his book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity which is very relevant at this point in time. So if you missed any of these conversations, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to uh, to them as soon as you finished listening to Mark and I today. Mark, as ever, it's great to have you uh, back this week. Another crazy busy week if you follow central banks or any kind of financial or commodity market. How are you doing? How have you been doing since we last spoke? I'm glad it's Saturday. So uh, <laughs> just in terms of not from what, I may have made or not made in the markets, but just because of all of the swirling around of information around central banks. So I, I, uh, I talked to some uh, clients and talked said that this was central bank week, and uh, everybody was was uh, posting new information. And I think we got a lot of clarity on where where liquidity is going for uh, forward in the in the world, and and it's not good. <laughs> It's not good. And and you know the saying, of course, thank God it's Friday, but I don't think anyone yesterday felt that way, uh, frankly, uh, with what happened, uh, I must say, in the markets. But anyways, um, as expected, the Fed did raise the overnight lending rate by 75 basis points to three to three and a quarter. And in the hawkish post-meeting press conference, the chairman signaled that they are not yet close to a peak in that rate. It was communicated that Fed funds would likely end the year at four and a quarter. Uh, The news rocked the Treasury market with the two-year note closing the week 32 basis points higher at 4.19%, just off the intra-week high at four and a quarter. The yield curve inverted further, closing at minus 57 basis points, not far off the minus 75 basis points seen in May of 2000. Equity investors were uh, equally dismayed by the news. The S&P 500 closed the week down approximately 5% and now stands about 1% above the low hit in June, uh, with last week's FedEx news continuing to reverberate through the market. In addition to the Fed raising interest rates, the Swiss National Bank also hiked, eliminating the last negative interest rate in Europe. Traders had been looking for a 1% move, greater than the 75 basis points that the S&B actually delivered. Both the BOE and the ECB continued to strike a hawkish stance, But investors are doubtful that they will follow through with the same determination as the Fed. And evidence can be found in the currency markets. Uh, We saw weakness in those two currencies versus the dollar. The pound closed near 5% lower and the euro near 3% lower compared to last week's close. The fall in the pound intensified by the news that the UK intends to cut taxes in an effort to combat what was labeled an ongoing recession and hit a fresh year, 37-year low at 109 and also the 10-year gilt yields ripped to 3.83%, up from 3.5%, the largest one-day rise since at least 1989. On the other side of the globe, uh, the Bank of Japan continues to be dovish, on the other hand, reaffirming their commitment to holding interest rates at artificially low levels. That policy has caused a nearly 20% devaluation of the yen versus the dollar, and in an attempt to stem the decline, the BOJ intervened, buying in for the first time in over two decades. Of course, many other central banks raised their benchmark rates this week. As we close out the week, the markets don't feel anywhere near equilibrium. With that, investors should expect volatility to continue into the quarter end next week, and most likely for a lot longer. 
Mark, let me bring you back here and just um, for you to talk a little bit about one of the things that you've been noticing in the last few weeks since we last uh, spoke, both either from markets or from your kind of trend-following lens. Well, the, the thing that really sort of strikes me is is, is the moves in the currency markets uh, because uh, we now have what I call currency vigilantes. It used to be that we talked about bond vigilantes that they, they you know, th that they would sort of, you know, uh, slap, you know, reality into the face of, you know, policymakers. But now we have the currency vigilantes that are telling you that some central banks are still behind the curve and some other banks are, you know, obviously going to continue their their uh, hawkish policies. When you look at the uh, dollar as an index, you know, it's up well close to 17, close in, closing in on 20%, you know, gains for this year you look at the yen it's it's well into bare territory and if you look closely as this is that the boj has not changed its policies but they're so worried about what's happening now at the end this is now they intervene and, and that was uh, intervention has always been thought of as a failed policy this is that there's been a lot of research in that area is much more actively used in the in the 80s uh, and then they stopped doing it because they said it just doesn't work. If you uh, if you intervene and don't change your underlying monetary policy, you're not going to have any uh, any effect. And as a central bank, you're going to lose money on those trades. That's where the environment that that we're in. But you just look at you know the pound. You look at uh, uh, euros. You look at all of the currencies. They're clearly telling you that the rest of the central banks around the world are uh, are are behind what's the uh, what the Fed is doing, and they have inflation that's just as high as in the U.S. or uh, somewhat higher. So, in some sense, a lot of the trends that we're seeing are going to continue. Some people have started to talk about, well, we're oversold to some degree. You can't be oversold if, let's say, the fundamentals are still in one direction. Uh, in fact, that's why I sort of focus in and look at fundamentals, because uh, if you look at technical graphs, you could say, like, look, these markets look like they're overextended. But then you look at what's going on on the policy side, you say, this could continue on for quite a while. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting when you were talking about that, and, and obviously with the pound hitting 109 uh, uh, this week, it kind of reminded me that I think that in September, I think we're exactly 30 years since the pound uh, was forced out of the uh, EMS, as it was called back then, uh, on that, um, I guess, George Soros uh, breaking the uh, the pound or, or whatever the, 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 the story is. Um, so uh, that's an interesting uh, coincidence uh, that we are now back to uh, really extreme uh, low levels now. Um, but also I think that what, what you're saying about the currencies, um, I think people have somewhat forgotten uh, what happens when you really get these big, massive forces out. Um, and what I mean by that is that in the last 20 years or so, between central banks, policy has been quite coordinated um, because they've been more or less in the same situation from an economic point of view. Um, and that means that there hasn't really been lots of things going on in the currencies. I mean, for trend followers, I don't think we have, as an industry, have made much money, if anything, in the currency sector up until this year for at least 10, 15 years. But these big forces, especially when it happens um, and it manifests itself in currencies, it actually has a ripple effect into many, many other things. And so what I worry about uh, a little bit uh, is that there are so many uh, people sitting in a portfolio management role today, even at big pension funds, and they have no experience with inflation. They have no experience with these kind of moves in general, let alone uh, big currency moves. Um, and uh, many of these quote-unquote experts, have to, all, all they've been doing is been calling for some kind of Fed pivot um, so that things could get back to normal and we would get back to our 2% inflation target and so on and so forth, and everything would be fine. Um, so my worry is that there's going to be some some um, fallout uh, from this lack of experience, uh, so to speak, um, and, and maybe this is really just the beginning uh, of that. It was interesting to me, if we just stay with the trend-following theme uh, this week, of course, it, it's been a solid week, I imagine, for... For the trend following industry, that's certainly what the indices suggest. Um, 
And of course, once again, it's been the fixed income markets and to some extent the currency markets that have been, um, you know, uh, leading the charge, so to speak, uh, maybe with a few other sectors. Um, but frankly, I think most of the risk budgets are are being focused uh, in these two uh, quote-unquote trends. And interestingly enough, again, um, we heard out, and you and I, I think, spoke about it uh, a little while ago with J.P. Morgan and Nomura coming out at the end of July saying, oh, but but trend followers had gone out of their short fixed income trades and now they're positioned in for something else and what have you. And, and I think we all agreed that, no, no, no. I mean, if we look at our positions, there's no, nothing to suggest that we have any long signals coming uh, in the near future in, in these sectors. And I think that's, uh, you know, another thing why people should be very careful what they read in the, uh, you know, um, mainstream media about what trend followers are doing. And we're going to actually going to talk about that a little bit later with some other uh, research that has come out uh, in, in that direction, so to speak. Um but anyways, it is definitely interesting times. Uh, unfortunately, it's also very painful times for many traditional investors, but at least for those who did make the jump into um, trend following, uh, there has been some good news uh, this year so far, at least. My own trend barometer is finished at 55 uh, Friday, so again, confirming um, kind of a positive uh, month so far, at least, for for trend followers, and if I just briefly, before I bring you back, my uh, Mark, talk through the the where we are on the indices, uh, the beta 50 index, and that is as a Thursday. I think Friday was a good day. Uh, I certainly expect that to be a good day. Um, so, but even as a Thursday, we're up 2.3% for the month, up 17.3 for the for the year. Sockgen CTA also up 2.3% for the month and uh, 24% for the year. The trend index up three and a half, almost up 32.6 for the year. And the short-term traders index up 75 basis points uh, and up 11.93 so far uh, this year. Um, and contrasting that, we have the traditional markets, the MSCI World Index, down 7.19 so far in September, down 24.5 for the year. The World Government Bond Index down 2.62% for the month, up sorry, down 12.58 for the year. And the S&P 500 down 6.62 for the month, down 22.5 for the year, well in well back in the um, bear market territory. So just a little bit of insight from from, from the trend-following world, I guess. No, it, it really is, uh, I, I don't want to use the word scary, but uh, but unusual because I, I look at, uh, I run, a, for, for a lot of markets, I'll run a short, medium, and long-term trend-following, just, just indicator, and just to sort of give me, can I can I have a, a flash look of what the markets are doing, so it could t- tell me like a little dashboard that's telling me exactly what's 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 going on, and uh, you have everything in the in the equity markets and equity indices in the U.S. and countries and sectors they're all short. You look at everything in fixed income, it's all short. You look at everything in currency markets, there's one or few uh, emerging market currencies that maybe in long-term trends it hasn't moved through, but everything on the G7, you know, it's all uh, short. You look at fixed income across the U.S. and it's short. Uh, energy markets, you're sh- uh, short across the board at, at all different time frames. And so it is a little scary when you see everything positioned all in one direction, all sort of following a single narrative. Uh, it worries you because then you say like, well, is this crowded? Okay, which we could talk about crowdedness a little bit later, but it also tells me is, is that if there's some information that changes expectations from this uh, this negative viewpoint, this is that it, it could be painful if you're, you're trend following right now, but, but it's seldom that you see the situation where you're gonna be so sharp, short in a lot of major markets. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up. It kind of leads us into uh, one of your first topics, but we have a question that came in uh, that I need to ask you beforehand. But just as a little brief comment on that, I think a lot of people who are doing models like that will get exactly the result that you do, that you have. But all I want to say is from a practitioner's point of view, that is not how our portfolio looks like. We are not short across everything. Um, and, and frankly, we have very little exposure in things like uh, equities because it's actually a little bit of a mixed bag, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where I guess we all do trend following a little bit different. And so we get, we end up with different positions, but I agree 
if this continues, probably at some point, most trend followers will end up having a very short exposure across the board, just like we had earlier on this year, um, maybe with the, well, I guess if you say we were long the dollar, we would have had a very long exposure with the exception of fixed income, perhaps uh, early in the year, because all the commodities were going up at that time. So, uh, but it has been an interesting year and there has been a couple of transitions, of course, but they've been kind of dampened by the strong trends in a couple of the right. sectors. Now, now, when I sort of use this as a dashboard uh, that's not accounting for volatility, that's not accounting for portfolio structuring, it's just sort of say, yeah. Yeah, let's look at some simple, you know, trend uh, indicators and, and look at what's going on. And so that's what you really sort of pay for when you buy a manager, because you sort of say like, okay, I see a lot of these indicators, but now how do I sort of account for volatility? How do I account for the fact that I want to have diversification in my, within my portfolio? And then I also have to account for how do I manage that risk in terms of perhaps stop losses or other, other mechanisms to sort of reduce my exposure when everything looks like it's all you know, pointed or leaning in one direction. Now, I, um, you uh, are not familiar with this question, but it just came in from Matthew. Um, and uh, so I just want to quickly ask you uh, about this because it is kind of relevant um, when you think about what the times we're going through right now. So Matthew writes in, I have a question which may or may not be worthy of the weekly Systematic Investor podcast. Of course, Matthew, uh, all questions are worthy. Um, and he writes, I was wondering about the risk of trend funds in the event of some kind of global financial reset event, since the fundamental deal in the futures is there is uh, is there any risk um, that these contracts may not be honored at such time? So what you're talking about here, Matthew, is a kind of systemic risks in the clearing broker community, futures exchange community. What are your thoughts? We've obviously seen... Some firms over the years, MF Global, to name one, um, go under. What are your thoughts on these things, Mark? Well, you know, I was around for MF Global. I was around for the right. 87, you know, crash. <laughs> I was working for the uh, Mercantile Exchange at the time. And yeah. uh, and just a sort of side story is, is, is that there, behind the board of trade, there used to be some pawn shops because it was a little bit of a seedy area, you know, uh, underneath the uh, subway uh system there and uh the night of the crashes is, is that they had uh you know uh, policemen on horses sort of working with the mob of people outside the pawn shop that were trying to sort of uh you know pawn off their their watches to make margin calls uh, so uh and that always vividly stuck in my mind because as i was walking through the through the uh through the area so uh that that's what you call a liquidity event but uh, we'll say that since we've had these crises, I think we've done a much better job of thinking about systemic risk, managing systemic risk, and trying to plug holes within the system where there could be leakages from failure. So uh, so I think from a brokerage community, we've done a better job. Uh, we'll sort of say the risk management at the exchange level is much better. At the same time, is is that we'll sort of say that uh, uh, as the quality of our risk management has improved, the same time was that we've taken a strategic view, and this is policymakers around the world, is that we want to place more and more risk on exchanges, so that we can actually be able to monitor, see it. We could then have the clearinghouse be able to uh, to control that that risk and control the margin process. That's a good thing, but at the same time, as is that we've we've taken a lot of little risks, which may have have a higher probability of something blowing up, and we sort of said we're all going to put it into one one place. If you do it right, that should reduce all the risk. At the same time, as is that you have more risk concentrated, but. Uh, but that's more of a theoretical, you know, so that, that there's some possibility that it occur. But we'd sort of say, in general, that the futures exchanges, futures markets in general, have done a uh, better job of managing risk over the last 
10, 15 years than, uh, than I would have imagined. So the risk that there is to be a systemic failure is less. At the same time, as is that was there say for a given institution, could there be failures? Absolutely. And, and the, the one area that we want to try to highlight is, you know, trade financing and financing of commodity houses, especially in the energy market. With, when energy was getting up to uh, well over $100 a, uh, a barrel, you had, uh, you think of the same cargo uh, of oil was significantly larger in terms of dollar value. The risks that you have to put up for margin, for insurance are greater. Uh, the amount of uh, money that energy companies that are hedging have to post for margin is greater. So there could be a liquidity failure event for commodity firms, given the fact that they have to post a liquid margin with sometimes illiquid assets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also think, and obviously I have no way of knowing this, but I have a feeling that if there was a major exchange in, in, in you know, having an issue, a futures exchange, I would have thought that they are regarded as systemically important, just like a JP Morgan or, or whatever. So I would have thought that there would be some efforts to make sure that that didn't actually play out um, because that would have, that would not just be a Lehman moment, that would be like a Lehman moment, time, Lehman moment times a thousand. So I, I, I think, I, I mean, I think it's what's interesting is that with the futures markets, they have proven, historically at least, to be incredibly good at upholding liquidity um, during all of these crises, much better than, even the foreign exchange markets that are, you know, claimed to be the most liquid markets in the world. I mean, they certainly weren't liquid uh, during some of the crises we've seen both uh, in, um, I think, remember from from 08, but also remember some of the days during the COVID crisis uh, where futures uh, were, I wouldn't say unaffected, but they were certainly liquid enough for, for, um, for, for people like uh, CTAs to do their business, that's for sure. Now, the real issue... Uh when we look at from what we've learned in, uh, from the pandemic in March 2020 is liquidity, as, uh, because liquidity is, is sort of like the canary in the coal mine for, uh, for a margin crisis or a failure crisis. So we did have liquidity problems in the treasury market and the cash market, which then spilled over to the futures markets. People weren't able to uh, put on the hedges they weren't able to find the collateral that they needed. And this is where they really had a problem. Now, I think that the Fed and other central banks are aware of uh, liquidity issues. Uh, they know that they have to provide liquidity as the lender of last resort. But when you look at the problem of what is the amount of inventory that dealers hold relative to the size of the market and the size of trading, we just don't have a lot of you know market makers in cash markets, and we don't have a lot of market makers in general to provide liquidity to markets. That means that we could have large moves that are uh, that maybe started from a information event or some some uh, event, but will be extended for the simple reason is is, is that we don't have liquidity providers on the other side of trades. Liquidity yeah. is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, and which actually was very interesting because we this week earlier this week published this episode with uh, Michael Howell, which is all about liquidity and also um, capital wars in general. Um, so it's very apropos uh, these times. So if people haven't listened to it, they really should go back and 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 hear what he had to which say. Which is, a, I, I love the work that he does. But there's two levels of liquidity. There's the liquidity that's provided by banks from credit. Okay which is the flows of capital across the world, okay? Uh, we, have, uh, we have potential problems in liquidity on, on capital flows and money needed to, let's say, hedge dollar exposure. But there's also, the, uh, they will call that macro liquidity. Then there's also micro liquidity. The micro liquidity is, is that when I want to trade an instrument, this is that do I get the fair price at that time? And the reason why you know, treasuries are considered a safe asset is because that you will get, when you go to the market, you will get the fair value price when you look for a price of immediacy. If you can't get a fair price 
immediate when you want to sort of uh, buy or sell, then you have uh, you know gridlock. You have uh, potential for failure, and 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 so it's the micro liquidity that we're worried about. Your last week's call was about macro liquidity. All right. Well, let's move on from the question to um, your topics that you brought along, um, which uh, looks very interesting. Um, and the first one is um, a research paper that I've not come across before, I have to say. Um, it's uh, from the uh, Swiss bank, UBS. It's titled CTAs, How the $375 Billion Influences Global Assets. Um, and... Um, yeah, very interesting. I read it a couple of weeks ago, um, and wasn't even I wasn't actually expecting you to bring it up today. So I'm glad you did. Um, and I'm curious to hear um, wh- what you uh, what you take away from this uh, research. A lot of people worked on it. Uh, it 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 seems um, so, uh, and maybe it's something they're going to continue to publish. I, I have a feeling it is, but admittedly, it's the first time I've come across it. So. What are your takeaways from this uh, quant piece uh, or CTA focus piece from UBS? Well, this is from their Q series, which is from their quant group. It's a 57-page report, uh, first talking about CTAs in general and then and then about how to extract s- signals. So, so the reason why you listen to podcasts is because you don't have to read the 57-page report. <laughs> this is it. Hopefully, we could boil it down to something that's, that's what reasonable. We do, yeah. So. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I had a, uh, you know, friend client that I've uh, been working with. He said, oh, have you seen this UBS piece? And, and I said, no, I haven't. He says, oh, you got to read it. It's really interesting. Now he's an equity guy. He wasn't a, he's not a trend follower. He's not a, uh, he, he's not focused on this kind of markets. And, and he goes, he said, oh, you know, I read this is really, uh, really important, I think. So I read it myself and. I was disappointed, in, and because at this point in time, given all the podcasts we have and all the mar- uh, and you sort of say this is a three hundred and seventy-five billion dollar market, is that right away UBS gets gets wrong the difference between a CTA and a trend follower. So they said, well, let's talk about CTAs. So and then what they do is then try to explain all the value of what trend following is. So. So if I think it's the one thing that you get from this podcast is is that trend followers are CTAs, uh, but not all CTAs are trend followers. <laughs> this is it. It's a mantra that you got uh, got to remember because people are still confusing the two. The second is that they talk about uh, CTAs, meaning trend followers, as momentum traders. And again, this is it. Trend following is not momentum. There is a difference between uh, between the two, and you know, trend following is an absolute strategy. So where you're looking at absolute returns and you're you're extracting it from the behavior of prices. Uh, momentum is a uh, is a uh, cross sectional relative value strategy in, in the traditional sense of how, how we think about momentum. And so what happens is, is that right away is, is that if you're an unaided reader, you're confused about what exactly you're talking about when in reality what they're sort of saying, trend following has value, and uh, but trend following is not momentum. It's price-based absolute uh, strategies. What they do do, which is really good, is, is that they, again, sort of walk through the battery of tests to show the value of, of CT, uh, CTAs. They call it CTAs, but trend followers. Is that sharp ratios are good over the long run, although there are periods that, that they'll underperform, which, which we really, really already know. Diversification from trend following is uh, is very strong. Uh, strong Is that correlation of equities is zero or slightly negative with bonds uh, you know positive uh, they can reduce drawdowns they can provide tail hedging ex- uh, hedging or they could reduce exposure because they do very well when uh, and what they do is they look at a different way they look at the persistence when there's an increase in real interest rates and they say that uh, I think their conclusion is is that if you look at the uh, sixth out of seven uh, times when they indicate there is a greater than a nine-month increase in real rates is, is that you get positive returns from following trend followers. 
So, so it's a slightly different take uh, on how to uh, to cut the data to show that they still offer, you know, uh, good value in, within a portfolio. And then they show exactly is is that if you add, you know, trend following to a sixty forty portfolio or equity portfolio, you will get lower risk and lower drawdowns. But then what they do is is that their main part is they say like, well, look. Uh, these are really important managers. These are important strategies. It's a big market. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to sort of extract out what are the signals that come from CTAs. And so what they do is they actually say, say well, we're going to take some exponential moving averages, number of different time frames. We're going to look at some crossovers. We're going to then be able to be able to come up with signals for each market that they believe CTAs trade. Then what they'll do is they'll uh, z-score them, so so they're going to sort of uh, weight them by volatility and convert them into signals between minus one and one. And from that, then they could be able to sort of say, using some uh, liquidity and portfolio adjustments, say, this is what we believe are the positions that CTAs currently hold in the market. And then what they say, say we could extrapolate and say, this is what we believe that CTAs will be positioned like in the next two weeks. And then what their objective is to say, well, we can report and tell you what CTAs do we could tell you what we think that they're going to do in the future and we think that this does a better job than uh, commitment of traders reports which re reports positions of large traders at u.s exchanges so so in some senses is that their their overall objective is to say like ctas are really good and so what we're going to do is we're going to sort of replicate trend following strategies generate signals, and then we're going to provide a monthly report to tell you what those signals are and say, this is this is how they're positioned, this is what they do, and you could do this too. Yeah, I mean, um, I when I read the report a couple of weeks ago, I also got very excited in the beginning because I thought, this is great. I mean, here's a yet another investment bank that is now clearly embracing trend following, telling all their clients how great trend following is and, and why they should have it in their portfolio. Of course, these things happen often uh, after a good period of performance, and then you hear nothing um, for a while. Um, but we'll take whatever we can get in terms of uh, uh, praise from these uh, investment banks who clearly control a lot of uh, client flows. But that being said, I do not understand why there is this fascination of then trying to, just like Nomura, just like JP Morgan, it's not just UBS, let's be clear, trying to... Although I will say I've not heard the others talk about what CTAs would be positioned for in two weeks' time. I mean, it's this weird desire to kind of almost front-run CTA. So, okay, let's agree it's a great strategy. Well, why not just allocate money to the strategy or build your own trend-following um, models and compete with us? Why do you have to come out and saying, oh, listen, we can predict now what they're going to be positioned uh, like in two weeks' time. So you can just follow that and position yourself like that. I mean, how can you predict something that even we can't predict? Because unless you know what the markets are going to do specifically for the next two weeks, you have no idea what positions we're going to have in two weeks' time. So it surprises me that there is this focus uh, on that um, and – I worry for people who may not be um, listening to us every week that they might eat it raw because it comes from a big investment bank saying, oh, they must be right. They oh, they must be able to do this. Uh, and I would suggest that they this is not a good way to um, to, to look at, 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 at trend following. But I do agree, by the way, with your, and I think it is important that we distinguish this point about that not all CTAs are trend followers. But trend follows our CTAs. I think that is a very important um, point. Now, given a $375 billion market, this is that uh, Wall Street and London, uh, the London city are always going to behave as is it, that, that, that there's a big pot of money there. How do, how do we be able to sort of ex, uh, extract some of that for ourselves? So now banks 
are already competing against trend followers as a business because they already offer, we'll call it trend following surrogates in the alternative risk premium swap business. So you can go to a bank uh, and they will give you a set of rules of a trend following model. And they would say, we'll put it into a swap form and then we'll, we won't charge you any incentive fees. What we'll do is we'll just charge you, you know, a fee on the, on the, on the swap. And then you can be able to notionally fund this and be able to put this in the portfolio. So, so they're already uh, generating uh, swap business. And there are some French banks that are, if you have, we'll say, sizable bi- in terms of billions of trend-following swap products available. They're also competing by saying, is that like, look, we can tell you what the signals are. So if you, you think that this is, if you like the strategy, we'll give you the signals. So it's important then to sort of say like, well, what is the distinctive value of having a money manager or a firm manage your assets versus doing it a swap? Because a swap is in some sense a passive investment. It follows the rules and you know, no matter what happens, it is not gonna change unless you sort of sell the swap back. So, uh, so what you're looking for, for when, you, when you buy into a firm is the fact that they can do ongoing research. They can be able to uh, adjust models. Uh, they can get execu- uh, execution value. So they can be able to add or subtract markets based on whether they think that there's a need for more diversification or they feel that some markets you know, don't, uh, don't work for trend following. So there's a whole set of dynamic behavior that you get from a firm that you don't get with, let's say, passive trend following and investing. So others could sort of say, no, I I want that that passive index because I know exactly what I'm getting. So, but I think one of the things that I take away from listening to the podcast and from my own uh, view of the markets is is that markets are dynamic. They constantly are changing uh, and the structure of markets are changing. And so it always requires ongoing research to try to sort of say, how can you be able to enhance or uh, further develop your edge in the marketplace? Yeah, and the other point, I just maybe we'll move on to the next uh, topic you brought along, but the other point I, I wanted to mention is that, you know, a lot of the CTAs are clients, are good clients of these investment banks. So why is it you have parts of of your bank trying to compete, even trying to kind of take business away from your own clients. Why don't you instead have a business model where you actually try to help your clients by, you know, finding investors for these funds that are paying you well every year for doing business with you? It just strikes me as a very weird policy. But, of course, I'm biased in this in this case. <laughs> I guess. Well, the, the the main thing though is this is, is that if you read this paper, it has some good takeaways, you know, on just what trend following can add value. I think that uh, even in the '90s and even in the '80s, you know, banks were constantly trying to reverse engineer trend following signals so they could be able to sort of sort of look into what CTAs were doing and see and if that could give them an edge as market makers. And and in some senses that that if I'm a market maker. I would want to know what CTAs are doing for the simple reason is, is that if someone calls me up and says, uh, okay, I want, I want you to be able to execute this amount of trade, this is it. I'd want to know, either, uh, is that all of the trade? Are they trading full or, are they, uh, or is there a lot more orders behind that? And am I going to get steamrolled if I, if I, let's say I'm a market maker and I take the other side of that trade. So, so there is a sort of a, a, gaming strategy between broker market makers and money managers where you're always trying to sort of say can i anticipate what the cta or trend following is do, uh, doing so i can be able to position myself for uh, to either reduce my losses as a market maker or potentially increase my profits so so there is a gaming aspect of all of Wall Street with every strategy where someone's trying to reverse engineer your strategy to sort of be able to figure out how I can be able to profit from that flow. 
Yeah. All right. Well, um, speaking of flows, um, you brought another topic that you wanted to talk about, which is the global fixed income markets and and what's been happening at the moment uh, in the last couple of months, but certainly intensified this week with a coordinated central bank policy and and now even some um, you know some other actions from at least one of the central banks. So. Take us into that topic and let's see where we go with that. Well, you know, I, I think that the the important point here is is is, is that that and we, which we've already touched on this is that there's tremendous amount of coordination of central banks. All of them are behind on inflation. All of them are following the same strategies. So that when you move from what and I think a recurring theme in the way I view markets is is that what are the underlying macro trends and how are those displayed in prices? So we have a clear mar- market tw- uh, trend of coordinated central bank behavior. And we know that it's they're behind the curve relative to inflation right now, so that we should expect that, that there will be price trends that will be coordinated around the world. I mean, coordinated, they're gonna be correlated. So, so correlated trends will happen. And so you should expect that, that you know, the bond market, the gilt market, the treasury market up along the curve are all going to be in the same positioning. And so, so we'll sort of say that the narrative leads to sort of correlation and trends. And that's what we're seeing in the marketplace. And that's what we're seeing, especially in this week in all the central banks. And what you find out is, is that uh, when the Fed raises rates, they're attempting to actually, in some sense, export in inflation to other countries. So other countries, in some sense, to stop inflation from occurring in their country, have to also raise rates. So, so in some senses, is that you have an arms race or a game, uh, a game going on? Is is that Fed wants to export inflation? They raise their their rates. They say like, oh, what do I have to do? Well, I see that there's depreciation in my currencies, which means is that my imports are going to be more expensive. So now I'm going to have to raise my rates because I don't want to take in this exported inflation. So now I got to raise rates. And so what happens is that you actually create the foundation for a global recession because we're coordinating the behavior of central banks to all raise rates around the world. And what may seem rational for one central bank when done across the board could lead us into a global recession. And that's, and you know, we could sort of say, we get the indications of that when we look at commodity markets. So while we look at commodity trends, at the same time, is is that they're giving a forward expectation of what might happen to markets. So, so look at oil markets. Oil markets are now under eighty dollars a barrel. This is that if you would have said we just had you know three hundred thousand in a uh, Russian uh, uh, conscripts called up, Ukraine war is still going on. You look at the you still have an energy problem in Germany and the rest of Europe of like how are you going to heat your homes and it, and if someone said well, given all that information, what do you think is happening to crude oil prices? You would not think it's they're going to uh, they're at seventy eight dollars a barrel after being at uh, one ten to one twenty. So we have a more than a twenty percent decline in oil prices. Why you have a geopolitical price a crisis? So this is clearly telling us that there's a sh- uh, that there's have a decrease in aggregate demand, where there's just people don't need energy right now. So markets are forward-looking. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in the energy markets and, and commodities in general. And actually, I just want to sort of flag uh, that on Wednesday, we're going to publish uh, a follow-up conversation with Adam Rosenzweig, uh, which was one of the most popular uh, conversations we had in the spring, um, where he went through the whole uh, sort of commodity situation. And, and we continue that conversation with the focus on energy uh, uh, next week, but uh, we will do a further uh, follow-up with Adam uh, a few uh, weeks um, later because there are many other parts uh, moving in that. So uh, definitely stay tuned uh, for that. Um, we talked about earlier uh, about the trends in the same direction. I don't know if you have any more things. I noticed that as, as one of the topics, um, but then there's also 
something that happened this week, which we haven't seen for a long time, um, which kind of links a little bit to um, the whole issue about central bank policy. But we did see the um, Bank of Japan um, intervene the currency market this week, which is um, something we, at least those of us who have been around for the last 30, 40 years, it was pretty normal uh, back in the day. Uh, we haven't seen it for a while. So it's interesting that we are back to that instrument being used uh, by central banks. And and this is where uh, where the internal, uh, we'll call it monetary policy, what you'd like to have is, is that you you're, you're continue to have loose monetary policy because you want to try to, you know, get inflation higher. You want to try to get get growth higher. And at the same time, is is that it uh, it then intersects with the fact that you're not isolated. You're part of a global economy, and so you sort of see that the yen is in a tremendous bear market. Is is going to one uh, one forty six? Is so so you say like, well, how do we stop this? This is it, and they say like, well, maybe if we intervene in the market, we could stop this, you know, speculative excess, and it usually works in the short run. You know, you have intervention. So so most of the research that we go back, it's it's. It's sort of old because there just hasn't been a lot of intervention. Shows us is that that you can dampen volatility, you'll have a short term impact. But usually, then if you say that the underlying policy is still the same, this is that then the trend you're going to go back to to trends. So so we just sort of say that uh, I think there was a little strengthening of the yen. But you know, say like, if there's no change in policy for the BOJ, is this it, and the rest of the world has higher interest rates and they're having more hawkish policies, is it that you can't sustain that, not unless you're going to start to use up all of your you know, reserves uh, to try to sort of uh, manage that currency. And you know, I don't think that we're ready for managed exchange rates just yet. No, and I wonder if there's a little bit of a link uh, in Sodom, the treasury sell-offs uh, and the intervention, actually, because if they're buying yen, they're probably selling dollars, um, and they might have to sell treasuries to um, to sell those dollars. I don't know. Um, I was just thinking about it while you were talking about the intervention, um, because it has been quite a ferocious week for, uh, for U.S. treasuries um, this week as well. Now, I would sort of say that... Uh I was engaging in the cognitive dissonance of following the markets really closely as a macro guy when I should just be looking at uh, that uh, trends. And so, so if you look at the the Fed meeting, this is it. Fed comes out seventy five basis points up. Market s- sells off a little bit. Then then uh, uh, Chairman Powell has his, his his presser, and all of a sudden he starts talking, and the market starts rallying. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like like you said, like okay. Uh, you know, I'm listening to the words, and people are interpreting it completely different. That he's not as hawkish. That they're sort of saying is like, look, you know, I think that there's something positive here. So then they really sort of had to said like, okay, let, let's like digest what we just heard and what we've seen from the dot plots or whatever. And then that's when the market sort of you know uh, started to sell off hard. Uh, and you know, from a trend following perspective and a macro perspective, you say like. Yes, we got the 75, it could have been 100, you know, it fell within expectations. So there shouldn't have been as much a reaction because the market should have already discounted that. But what they didn't discount is the fact is, is that, look, we're looking at, you know, well above 4%, four and a quarter by year end. We're going to go even higher in 2023. We might start to sort of see rates fall in 2024. And then you sort of say like, well, if the Fed through their dot plots is telling me that that we're going to have above four and a half percent, you know, uh, rates, and they've been still behind the curve, but that's their best estimate. This is, is that you know, if I'm a fixed income guy, he'd say like, why the heck am I holding these bonds? <laughs> and so, so that's what so so is dot plot, you know, reaction, which is forward looking. And then now, if I'm a bond trader, say so like, well, if that's really what they think, and I've got to act uh, act accordingly. You know, um, I was reading one of the Danish newspapers a, a, a week or two uh, ago, and and um, the largest public pension plan in Denmark um, published their first half results, and it was um, shockingly bad. Um, I can't remember specifically how many percent they had lost, but it was significant. 
Um, and I actually think from memory that there were some articles out uh, towards the end of last year, early this year, uh, where they had come out saying, well, actually, it's so hard to get any real return, so we're going to take even more risk uh, heading into 2022, which, of course, couldn't have been worse in terms of timing. Um, but it does, as I mentioned earlier, it does concern me um, that you may have a lot of these quote-unquote long-only type uh, investors of real size, but also of real consequence from a societal point of view, uh, if their uh, assets get uh, you know shaved by 50% because they weren't just losing money in equities, they're now also losing money in, in uh, fixed income and private equity and what have you. Everything is, um, is going the wrong way um, because, frankly, most of them don't have much exposure uh, in things like, um, you know, in uncorrelated strategies like trend following or something else, of course. So there is definitely, um, there's going to be a fallout of, of, of what's coming in. And I think it could also exaggerate the, you know, the moves. And, and you know, listen, I saw a Bloomberg uh, conversation this week with Jeremy Grantham. I think it was recorded maybe uh, late, late August. I don't know, can't remember. But anyways, he, he's obviously been bearish uh, and talking about this bubble, uh, which, you know, to his credit, they have um, forecasted the previous bubbles, except for the fact that they're always early. And he admits them always being early. And sometimes it kind of almost um, cost them, uh, um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, clients um, because they're too early. And they were early this time as well, because they each started talking about this a year ago. But if he's right, like he ended up being the last few times, I mean, what we're looking at right now, according to him, is only the beginning. I mean, the bubble has not even burst. And there is one thing that is quite interesting that I'm noticing more and more of these people that I would consider as being, you know, people that's worth listening to. Um, a lot of them talk about how orderly it has been in the equity markets. There's no sense of panic or anything like that. Uh, even though we are, you know, in a bear market territory, but it's all been very orderly. Look at what volatility is doing. It's not suggesting any panic either. So maybe there isn't really any panic yet, and maybe the panic is all to come uh, going forward at some point. Like the ECB's Schnabel was out saying that we're moving from the great moderation to the great volatility. This could be some interesting times, and certainly for strategies that are directionally based uh, and not predicting anything, um, it could be... Uh, and, and that's the other thing, actually, I wanted to say is, um, and I don't know how you feel about this, Mark, but of course, CTAs get a lot of attention right now because returns have been so strong um, in the last 18, 24 months, maybe even. But who's to say that they can't continue? I mean, I think it's almost like with the Fed pivot, uh, I think some investors will sit back and feel, well, maybe we missed the boat. Maybe we we should have bought CTAs 12 months ago. We didn't. So um, it's too late. Well, maybe this is just the beginning of some kind of long period of above average returns after a um, period of time where certainly from 2015 to 2019, including those years, returns were below average. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that uh, you have to look at the forecasts and uh and as I'm sort of re recasting your question, you look at the forecast of what we're, what we're seeing is, is that the Fed actually thinks that we're going to have 1.7% uh, real uh, GDP for 2023. We're going to have, uh, you know, sort of uh, unemployment, you know, 4.1 to 4.5% and, you know, PCE inflation at 2.8%. So they're, they're sort of forecasting a Goldilocks economy. And so what you really have to sort of say is, is that is Goldilocks not going to occur? So, so what happens if just, you know, things are worse than what they expect? So you say, so let's go back and sort of say, how good a forecast has, has the Federal Reserve been with their SEP forecast? They've been horrible. This is it. If they were working on a Wall Street bank, they would be fired. Uh, and so, so the, the real question is, is, is that are we not cognizant of the fact that we're hoping for a world that may not exist. And if the world that we would like is not the world that we see, 
then there's going to be further adjustments. And that means that trends could last a lot longer than expected. And and I think that that's, that's, a, that's a reality that we are going to face in 2023. Yeah. Now, just for time constraints, a little bit uh, on my side today, Mark, um, of the last remaining topics, is there anything you want to sort of highlight uh, you think is appropriate just to uh, round things off right. with? Well, the, the one thing that I, I, you know, I wanted to talk about, and this could be a longer discussion and depending on, on uh, what your listeners think is, is that I've been reading some of the work of uh, Ari Kroglensky. So he's a psychologist. He's now working on, you know, sort of radicalism and terrorism. But but he spent a lot of time looking at something uh, on dealing with how people deal with certainty and uncertainty. And what they, they did is they said, like, that people have a need for closure. Okay. And there's that you could actually classify people on a spectrum based on their need to, for closure. Some you know, are, are, you know, want to have a lot of closure. That means that they, they want, they don't want to have open-ended questions. They want to be able to have definitive answers. They want, they like to have yes or no. They don't like to live in the area of, of gray. And so he actually came up with a set of questionnaires to, to be able to sort of uh, determine your need for closure. And, and what he said, this is that the people who have a need for closure don't do very well with uncertainty. Okay. Because you, know, you got you know a lot of different information, you got conflicting signals, and uh, so therefore is is that they're stymied by that because they want to have an answer. They need to say you know what is the answer, and there may not be an immediate answer. Those who do not have a need for closure, you know, they're actually better prepared and are better able to deal with uncertainty. So. Uh, and so we're all in a spectrum. And this is if I gave you the qui uh, quiz or you took the questionnaire on your need for closure, you would be some point on that spectrum. I would be at a different point if we had other people, we could get different levels of, uh, of closure. And then I sort of said to myself, like, well, does that have anything to do with how I behave or what a, you know, what a quant does or what a trend follower does? And I would probably posit as a, as a hypothesis is, is that those people who want to follow models, those people who, you know, are quant uh, focused are probably have a greater need for closure than those who are more discretionary traders. So that a model is in our attempt to how to deal with our need for closure. So because if I if I'm a trend follower and if I say, uh, trends are up, so therefore I'm going to be able to buy in a very simple way. This is that that closes the issue. I, I now can feel I could take comfort with the fact is that I've made a de decision as opposed to when you think about even this uh, Fed decision on Wednesday. You know, I'm looking at the screen. I say, okay, here's the announcement. Here's the reaction. Here's uh, Chairman Paul. He says something else. What does that really mean? Here's the dot plots. What should I do there? Here's the SEP forecast. How should I use that? So I don't get any closure when I look at all of that random information that we use models as an attempt to gain closure in our trading environment. And so, uh, and those uh, who, uh, and your level of complexity or models may have to do with your degree of closure that you need or how much that you want closure to be sort of simple or more complex. So... Could you take it a bit further, actually, by saying that the paradox is that most people tend to shy away from trend following because they feel there is no certainty in what we do. And we say that in, in ourselves because we say we have no idea what we're going to do. We don't know how we're going to react and so on and so forth. So I get the sense of what you're saying. I kind of recognize the fact that for us it's comforting that we have our models, our rules to follow. Um, and maybe we can say, yeah, that gives us some kind of closure <laughs> in an uncertain world. But then I would argue that most people would take more comfort and more closure from someone saying, well, I think that Apple's going to produce a $2 billion revenue in Q4 and the equity price is going to go to 150 rather than the CTA saying, I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. I'm just going to follow my rules. Well, you know, I think that the CTA said, I don't know what's going to happen in any 
given situation, but I do know that, you know, or, or the assumption is, is that I can't predict the future, but I do know that if I'm, uh, a trend will usually continue. So therefore is, this is that my closure is the fact is that, that, that a, a trend will usually continue. I'm, uh, that's my underlying assumption. And so I, I do have problems with people say we're non-predictive. Yes, we are predictive. We are predictive that, that, that the price momentum or price trend that we see will continue, and that's what we're actually trying to exploit. If you really believe that uh, that you know we're non-predictive, then you believe that prices are always random, uh, you know, on the next day, and you don't really have anything to say about tomorrow's price. So, so I, I actually believe that we we do have something to say about uh, what the. Markets. That might be true, but we would keep that very internal, right? We would never go out and yeah. say, well, we think the markets are going to do this. That's what I mean. But anyway, it's uh, it's an interesting conversation. I'm sure we'll come back to it. And it is interesting how um, how these um, psychological issues, um, of course, we know they're incredibly important when it comes to to um, investing. Uh, and deep down, um, you know, we believe that human behavior is something that we can exploit to some extent through our strategy um so therefore psychology uh is 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 relevant because that's certainly part of what makes human behavior right psychology affects uh, you know you'd say well i'm agnostic i'm going to build a model and i'm taking out all of the uh biases and i'm taking out all of the psychology uh when i build a model that's wrong. Is 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 that that when you build a model, is is that you're actually embedding a lot of your own psychology into that model. The fact that you're saying that I'm willing to sort of play the odds through a model is telling you something about how you know, about your psychological makeup. And I think that this is what you know you're trying to get at with you need to for for closure. Is 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 that that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Is is that given uh, you know how I'm wired? May say is that I'm more comfortable with with building models and having signals that I, uh, give me a definitive answer than someone who said, "Well, I just want to have all the information uh, uh, gathered together, and then I want to sort of then process it." So. I always remember the story is when I first went down to the uh, floor of the Board of Trade is, is that you, you sort of see the visitor's gallery and you sort of see all the craziness. And and there's a, I always say there's only two reactions. There's there's one people uh, have abject horror and say, you know, I would never want to do that. And other people sort of say, this is really interesting. I got to be a part of it. But then once you say, I want to be a part of it, then you have to say, well, how can I create an edge? And I probably sort of said, this is it like floor trading or just uh, using my wits to trade, I I knew pretty quickly that's not who I was. That's not my makeup. That's not how I could be able to create an edge. I had to sort of get some closure through a model. And so so I said, that will give me my edge because I, I can't get it by just living by my wits. And and I think that uh, that knowing yourself will then determine exactly how you sort of should trade. Absolutely. No, absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up um, our conversation today. Just a couple of things that I'd love to uh, ask uh, our wonderful community um, to help out with. Uh, one is, uh, as uh, I've mentioned before, uh, if you could leave a rating and review. If you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review, uh, there are some suggestions as to how you can quickly leave them at the various platforms. So that would be super, super helpful for us uh, and the other one of course would be maybe to go to uh, um, and share a link uh, toptradersunplug.com forward slash share if you send that link to three or maybe five of your like-minded friends colleagues family members um, that would also be a great uh, help for us here at TTU. Next week, I'm joined by Alan, so I'm sure we'll be tackling some really interesting topics as well as a review of the month of September. I have a feeling it's going to be a September to remember already, uh, so make sure you're going to tune in for that. Uh, send us your questions, info at toptradersandplug.com, and we'll do our best to answer them. And of course, you can always check out the website where we publish blog posts and, of course, the monthly review that Rich and I do on the uh, trend-following industry and much more from mark and me thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week until next time take care of yourself and take care of each other 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.